Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. I'm very happy to welcome back to the show Bennett Lovett-Graff. Bennett is the founding publisher of the New Haven Review, a literary magazine based out of New Haven, Connecticut. And we first had Bennett on the show way back on episode 26, a year and a half ago, I think, to talk about his father's film collection, the Herb Graff Film Collection, which resides at the Yale Film Archive. Bennett, thanks for coming back on the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure, Tom. Okay, so I want to start our conversation about movie adaptations by uh, not actually talking about movie adaptations, but rather of kind of theatrical adaptations of sorts, of, of short stories. You run a series called Listen Here, based out of the Institute Library, and I wonder if you could maybe introduce uh, that series to our listeners, for those who aren't familiar with it, and t- tell us about a, a bit about what happens at Listen Here and, and how you came to be involved with it. Sure. So Listen Here is a program that's actually existed for a number of years. When it was originally conceived approximately seven, eight years ago, it was actually done in the coffee houses of New Haven on a weekly basis, and we rotated between coffee houses. That was a fairly intense schedule, and it was an all-volunteer activity at the time. There was a brief hiatus in it, and then the event actually moved over to a more stable arrangement. Uh, it occurs on the third Tuesday, 7 p.m. of every month, with the exception of the summer, so not in July and not in August, at the Institute Library, which is located on Chapel Street between Church and Orange. Uh, the arrangement is actually three organizations. It's the New Haven Review, I represent it, and I pick all of the stories. Uh, the New Haven Theater Company, which is an all-volunteer theater company, and they provide our readers. And then the Institute Library itself operates as our, uh, as our base, where people will come and listen. Um, <clears throat> the format is relatively straightforward. Actors will read two stories— it used to be the case that when we ran it in the coffee shops, they would just read the two stories and we were done and everyone went home. But we actually started adding a talk back after the two stories are read, and that has proven very, very successful. I, we often manage to get about anywhere from 20 to upwards of 40 people, and it basically runs like a class. Someone once described it to me very, very aptly as it's like a book club, but you don't have to read the book ahead of time. Because just, because central to the activity of, of listening here is that the story is read to you, right? It's it's performed at, at the top of the evening and then, then the conversation ensues afterwards. And and the reason I wanted to, to start off by talking about listen here is not just because I think it is a wonderful regular event that happens in downtown New Haven that people should know about, and also the first ever event that I wrote about for the New Haven Independent. That was my first article for for this paper. But also it gets at the core of this question that we're going to be talking about today in a slightly different medium, which is that of of adaptation, of taking an artwork kind of originally conceived in one format and bringing it over into a, um, a related but pretty wholly different other artistic format. Here in Listen Here, we have short stories written for the page kind of translated into something that is more like a, almost delivered like a monologue uh, right. by an actor who interprets the text and kind of performs it for an audience. And I wonder how, um, still thinking about Listen Here, um, 
I don't know, after seven years, seven plus years of, of uh, having actors read short stories aloud before audiences, what have you learned about the way that uh, kind of short stories make their way from the page to the kind of theatrical, not stage, but maybe the podium at the Institute Library um, through, through Listen Here? Anything that you've learned about adaptation you've picked up on, on which stories translate particularly well or which lead to, I don't know, most fruitful conversations? Well, certainly any story that actually has a dramatic component will lend itself. If it has a dialogue, if it has a very clear narrative, um, a story that tends to be very, very cerebral, um, a story that could be unusually postmodern in its structure, where it maybe takes advantage of the way words look on the page. These are difficult things to really convey. Uh, a perfect example of this phenomenon is the use of quotation marks. So not quotation marks around dialogue. Um, dialogue, sometimes you can intimate through change in voice. But what happens when a term is put in, quote-unquote, scare quotes? Um, how do you convey that? Or how do you convey something that is parenthetical if that parenthetical element is actually grammatically or rather syntactically fully integrated into that sentence? You couldn't necessarily tell that this is a parenthetical element unless you were doing something, making parentheses marks with your hands, which would be a strange gesture to begin with. There are a lot of, there are clear limitations since no one can, uh, you, there is no blocking of the stage where actors, it, it, it has been rare that I have had an actor go, I would describe as uh, the full dramatic. Um, I did have one actor who did uh, Edgar Allan Poe's The Black Cat, and by the end of it, he was essentially with, with, the story in one hand, he was tearing his hair out and shrieking at the end of it. That's a rarity. Uh, more often than not, uh, the actors remain composed. They also have to concentrate very, very hard on reading the material. Um, sometimes that can be a pretty significant challenge, not because the actors themselves are incapable readers, but sometimes the language of the story is doing pretty remarkable things. For example, we've had stories where there is a sentence that is interminably long. Purposefully so, it's supposed to express some sort of idea in the f through the structure of its sentence, maybe a stream of conscious thought, etc. That breathless sentence, that sentence that goes on and on, I have seen actors get lost in that kind of thing. So that accents is a key issue. And of course, one of the biggest key issues, which we do keep very much in mind, is... Uh, crossover. Should uh, men read stories that are told in the voices of women? Should women, sh vice versa? Should uh, someone who is not African-American deliver an African-American story? We don't treat these as um, black and white lines in the, s they're not lines in the sand, but they are always live issues for consideration. So one thing I love about Listen Here <clears throat> and love talking with you about it right now is that Listen here, unlike maybe other adaptations we're going to be talking about soon, um, I think prioritizes kind of absolute fidelity to the source text, right? This isn't an interpretation in terms of changing the material that you are looking to discuss or the material kind of originally conceived of and written by the author. This is maybe adding uh, some 
some further kind of embodiment through the voice and the performance of the actor, but there's no kind of messing around with the original text. And that's why, you know, when you get to issues of, of punctuation, there's a wonderful moment in the movie that we're going to talk about in the second half of the show, uh, quiet, a quiet passion in which Emily Dickinson kind of chews out her publisher for changing a few of her commas and mixing around a few hyphens. And he says, you know, I wanted to make it more understandable to our, our readers, but for an author as meticulous as Emily Dickinson and a lot of the ones featured in Listen Here, punctuation is as important as the words that um, appear in between the punctuation marks. Um, let's transition a little bit towards uh, movie adaptations because I think that this kind of gets a, a good gets us started on some of the the challenges and maybe the rewards of bringing a text from the page to a different format. But before we start talking about any specific examples, and I know we're going to talk about the dead in particular. Um, as you've been ruminating over what makes for a good movie adaptation, uh, as based on the homework that I gave you before the show. Um, are there any general principles that you would care to lay out and that you think that this is, well, not necessarily a recipe for a, a good adaptation, but these are the things that, that you look for when watching a movie adaptation. And we're talking about adaptations of, of literature here, too. Maybe we'll, we'll talk about what the, what, what the connotations are for literature as opposed to anything, any previously written source material. But when watching a movie adaptation of a work of literature... Uh, what are you looking for, and, and what do you think are some of the, the hurdles and I don't know, the rewards? Well, one thing that I'm... Let me explain. Let me at least emphasize what I'm not looking for. I don't worry about minutiae. So if small elements are changed, I don't regard those as sufficiently important unless they really alter the meaning of the work, the overall impression the thematic richness of the work. So what are the things I do look for are dramatic changes in, say, persona or plot um, that can significantly alter our understanding of the work. And at a minimum, we can make, I did outline for you in writing some of the possibilities, but one very big distinction one can draw right away is between based on and inspired by because there are movies that are based on a work, meaning that in some form or another, they really are hewing to the work. But there are those that are inspired by, as in the sense of, it took the basic premise of the work, but really has dramatically rewritten the story, made re almost another novel out of it with the same material. You know, I think that's a critical distinction that you're drawing, and it's one that I think I'm most interested for this conversation in talking more about the based on than the inspired by, and the filmmakers who have kind of decided to adapt a certain work of literature because of their appreciation of that text, not just a, a glimmer of interest in a part of the story, um, or even a character that they want to take on a slightly different path or explore certain kind of backgrounds or different angles uh, on, on that particular character. But someone, you know, th there's a, uh, a, an exchange in the, um, book Hitchcock Truffaut, where the French director Francois Truffaut interviewed the, the great Hollywood era filmmaker Alfred Hitchcock. And he was asking if Truffaut asked Hitchcock if you ever make an adaptation of a book like Crime and Punishment, like a masterwork of, of world literature. And Hitchcock said, absolutely not. He said that the, you know, for works that are already masterpieces in their original format, there's no need for a filmmaker to apply a kind of parallel visual vocabulary. If it exists perfectly already in the book, no need to turn it into something else. What he did with, you know, works like Vertigo or uh, The Birds or anything else, he took novels that he really had no interest in 
in their literary value, but rather saw, again, that, that glimmer of interest, something that he thought would translate right. well to a different format that maybe could realize its potential better in movies. But for, uh, I mean, maybe the next question I have for you then is, do you think the based on approach is inherently a foolish one? Is this, uh, um, something, I don't know, hubristic to say, here's a masterwork, I'm going to try to make another masterwork in a completely different way out of this masterwork? Well, let's, well, let's be clear. Not all, adap- not all adaptations to film are from novels that are masterworks. So the, the best known example is uh, The Bridges of Madison County, which had appeared as rather pop commercial sentimental fiction, and many people agreed that the version of the movie that was made with Clint Eastwood and Meryl Streep actually was a very excellent rendering of a novel that came across as relatively successful commercial pap. So there is that element. But when we get to the adaptation of a work of literature for a movie, there's different issues at play. So one thing is I don't take too much stock in the Hitchcockian notion that there is a perfect masterwork and and it's, and the form in which it has appeared is not only the, an instance of its perfection, but any other iteration in any other way in which we would care to grasp that work can only be a disservice to the work. With the understanding that there is always going to be a certain amount of transformation that occurs when any sort of artistic object is then migrated into a different format, whether we're talking about a painting that becomes the girl with the pearl earring, where we went from painting to novel to movie, what we're allowing is a certain amount of artistic license that in one sense we have to allow because artists, even across media, steal constantly. And steal, and, and there are those who steal well and those who don't. Um, so we could draw a distinction between uh, fiction that is not so great and fiction that is certainly very, very fine, and what it means to create film adaptations of those. But my response would be, you might want to respond to the film adaptations differently to each. One may be a question of aesthetic value. Gosh, is Bridges, Madison County movie so much better than the book, We're Done, um, as opposed to um, the Kira Knightley, Pride and Prejudice. is a really interesting and I think fairly solid attempt to transform the novel into the film, um, into, the, into the language of film. Um, and for what it's worth, it does what it does pretty well as a film. I'm talking with Bennett Levitt-Graff, the founding publisher of the New Haven Review, and this is Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. Uh, I think one of the things that got me interested in this topic in general is I was reading about the very early days of movies back in the late 1890s and then early 1900s and 1910s. And, uh, I mean, movie adaptations of uh, of written source material, of books, of short stories, of plays, goes back all the way to the, the very beginning of the art form. But it had a particularly steep rise in prevalence in the 19-teens with a kind of standardization of a slightly longer format film and with a, with the industry's kind of seeking of a certain cultural and artistic legitimacy among sure. audiences and critics. And that one, with the you know burgeoning popularity of movies, there was this great demand for stories. I mean, all of these, you know, nascent studios needed 
things to to stories to tell through the art form. It was no longer just kind of compilations or montages of vignettes or little short documentary yep. uh, bits about waves, you know, brushing up against the the walls of uh, of a coastal town. Um, audiences demanded stories in the same way that they saw them on the stage and in in uh, kind of dime or penny novels. Um, and they wanted those in the movie. And so movie studios turned to, one, they brought in authors to Hollywood to write specifically for the movies. And there's, I did an episode with Jordan Brower about different movie adaptations of The Great Gatsby and authors like F. Scott Fitzgerald and William Faulkner have long and very troubled histories um, going out to Hollywood to try to earn a bit more money as a, uh, as a screenwriter that would then finance their own kind of artistic pursuits as novels. But but movie adaptations of works of literature ha- have been happening for a long time. Um, and I wonder if we could start, uh, you know, maybe diving into the example that we picked to, to make sure that we had both watched, which sure. was um, James Joyce's and, I guess, John Huston's The Dead, coming, right. uh, I guess, 70 years after the kind of movie industry as a whole decided that it needed to turn to literature as a source of cultural legitimacy. Here, maybe, you know, adapting a work as widely heralded as the dead is not necessarily just a a ploy to get you know positive critical recognition before anyone's seen the movie but rather demonstrates a certain i don't know artistic interest or affinity from the director and the people involved in the film with the story that they're trying to tell there is there is a small commercial consideration which is merchant the merchant ivory productions had already begun to break ground that you could take classic literature one of their earliest is the europeans by henry james um, and actually, you know, make a buck. So there was also reasonable, fin- there were financial reasons that made it worth at least, made it a viable option. And uh, John, so this is a movie directed in 1987 by John Huston. This is the last film that he ever directed, uh, and supposedly he directed it from a wheelchair. He was really in, in, his, in his last days. <laughs> and this is someone who's not just recognized, again, where I did a, uh, an episode with, um, uh, about all about John Huston films. Uh, I'm I'm blanking on the name of the guest they had on that show, but if you search, go to deepfocusradio.com and search for John Huston, you'll find a whole episode about him. But he's no stranger to literary adaptations as well. He one of his most heralded movies, The Maltese Falcon, is based on a Dashiell Hammett novel, and of course he also adapted Moby Dick with Gregory Peck, which was not the most successful of adaptations. But here, coming eighty seven, we have. An adaptation of a short story, um, a short story by James Joyce from his 1914 collection, Dubliners. Um, I wonder, uh, maybe the first question I have for you about the, well, simultaneously movie and text. Um, what did you think of the movie? And do you have, uh, I don't know, much of a history affinity for the, the source material? Did you have much of a relationship with Joyce's The Dead um, going into to watching this movie? Um. I had read The Dead many years ago, and so, uh, as per your homework assignment, I gave it a reread. And I do know Joyce's Dubliners well. Um, I've actually had some of the stories read as part of Listen Here. We never do The Dead because The Dead is actually quite a long story. Um, it's, it's, it's almost longer than your standard short story, and it's just shot, and it's certainly shy of a novella. Um, and uh, so I, I, and I had not actually seen The Dead, although my father, when he had seen it, when he was alive, had loved it. So um, while The Dead wasn't new to me, it was nice to come back to it after so many years of having not read it. And seeing The Dead for the first time was actually, as a movie, was great because I really am a first-time viewer of the movie. 
Um, and because I'd done them so closely together, I can now do something of an assessment of what worked, what didn't, what changed, why. Um, one has to speculate on those kinds of things. And to give uh, some very quick background for those not familiar with the story or with the movie, this is, comes from a collection of James Joyce's from 1914 that describes middle-class Irish life at the turn of the century at a time of uh, kind of uh, nascent and quite fervent Irish nationalism. And he explores in each of his stories not just the various um, characters' relationship to an independent or prospectively independent Irish state, but also this notion of the epiphany is kind of central to every single story in Dublin. There's this moment in each individual's life when a realization kind of changes the entire trajectory of of their life, of their understanding of themselves, of the people they live with, of the country they live in. And I think there's certainly a, a very important... So The Dead comes at the end of this collection, and there's a very important epiphany that comes at the very end of this long story. But for the most part, this is a relative... I mean, you were talking about how some of the best stories for Listen Here are the ones with um, quite a bit of drama to the narrative. There is not a lot of drama at all to, to most of The Dead, in that it describes a relatively... Um, uh, kind of not directionless, but there's not a kind of hard and fast uh, narrative um, that anchors the dead in that it takes place at a, a middle-class Dublin party, an annual party in the winter. And we see a man who is, you know, preparing to give some, some kindly remarks to his hosts about Irish hospitality. And he runs into a few people who uh, upset him, inspire him, anger him, um, arouse him, and then there, there's maybe we'll get towards the ending in a second. But in terms of uh, what, what did you think of the dead, the movie as a as an adaptation of this of the short story by by Joyce? Did you find it uh, faithful, effective, uh, uh, transformative in any way? Um, well, certainly there were definite transformations in the course of of the depiction. Um, the one thing that to understand about a Joyce story, also about the fact that not a lot happens, is Joyce, in this sense, writes in the tradition of Anton Chekhov. So anyone who's familiar with Chekhov's short stories or his plays knows that it seems like not a lot is happening when, in fact, what's really being depicted in a fundamental sense is the interior life, which is what makes Joyce a truly great modernist writer, what he's trying to capture, and you've done it very well in your description, to match up the interior life with what's going on on the exterior, such as the, the fervent republicanism that seems to permeate the problem of hospitality and uh, drunken friendliness. Um, there's also a bit of a spat about the Catholic Church. Um, and one of the themes of the story itself is the dead is meant to not merely encapsulate what happens at the end. It's really about the past versus the present looking into the future, and the past is the dead and the present are the living, and how they both carry one another forward into the future. With respect to the movie, there were parts of it that I thought were wonderful. The final scene, which is that great epiphany, Angelica Houston does some really wonderful acting. There were certain parts of it that struck me as slightly overacted. There are some components of the story that cannot be related um, you can actually tell this. This is a, this, so. This is one of the things that you that occurs in film adaptation. So, the worst thing in film adaptation we know is the voiceover. The voiceover is a huge challenge, and it is extraordinarily rare that the voiceover ever works. In fact, one of the very very few movies in which it works to excess is the movie Stranger Than Fiction, 
But other than that, most of the times it fails. And this movie actually ends with a voiceover, but manages very, very diligently to avoid one throughout much of the movie. I'm, I'm going to interrupt you very quick. I want to I, I keep you on that thread, but I have to jump in about the voiceover because I think it gets at exactly the, maybe the most challenging part of adapting a work of James Joyce's to, uh, to the movie screen is that how do you capture that kind of interiority of each character and represent it in a primarily visual medium. Granted, movies, one of the great strengths of movies is that they are able to hit an audience at kind of multiple sensory levels at the same time. You're not just looking at images when you have a sound right. film like The Dead. You're able to listen to music, to the diegetic dialogue, to uh, the voiceover while seeing these kind of simultaneous planes of action in, right. in every single frame. And then, of course, montage. I mean, there are a lot of different elements that filmmakers can work with, but maybe the biggest challenge especially with someone like Joyce, where that interiority is never, um, nothing Nothing is ever kind of hitting you over the head or too explicit in a Joyce story. He is the master of these ambiguous symbols right. where you're not even sure if something is supposed to be a symbol or not. Um, but it, when it gets to what is going on inside the head of a right. character, um, that's incredibly difficult to represent on screen. And I think that last scene struggles with it in that there's, there isn't voiceover narration for most of the movie, and then all of a sudden it pops up, and it seems to break the kind of continuity or expectation of how the story is going to be narrated up until then. When you deal with interior issues, there's usually two fundamental problems that you encounter. One is the expression of inner emotion, and the other is actual facts. For example, one of the key issues in the story is that... Uh, the main character, Gabriel Conroy, is actually highly educated. But that isn't conveyed in the movie until the very end when a character who's actually been added to the movie that doesn't exist in the story, Mr. Grace, asks him to turn over exam papers that he's been grading to indicate that here is a university man. That actually shows up at the very beginning of the story because one of Gabriel's issues is the fact that he is better educated than everyone else who will be attending this party. And does that, in one sense, separate him? And he's acutely aware of that, right? And he's, he's very self-conscious aware of it. Very self-conscious, and it makes him feel somewhat awkward. We actually capture a, uh, a, a an embarrassing moment where he, he speaks to uh, the maid, Lily, about you know her maybe getting married. And she says something quite bitter because she's had a bit of a falling out with a beau, pretty obviously. And, that, and that's actually pretty accurate, but it's hard to capture the awkwardness. One other very clear example of, of another fact that isn't actually conveyed in the movie and is lost, which is too bad, is, so this difference of the fact that he's educated, there's also a huge difference between the fact that he is citified, he is from the city, whereas his wife Greta is really from the country. His mother, in the story it says, his mother did not approve of Greta, because she is a country girl, and he is not a country boy. And that is a huge division, which the movie does map out towards the end in The Great Epiphany. 
But that actually never comes up in the body of the movie. So I'm, I'm glad that you identified this very brief interaction with the maid early on in the story in the movie, because I found that one of the more effective parts of the story and one of the kind of bigger flubs of the movie in that yep. we So this is a, a very brief. He's taking and we'll get to what he's taking off in a second. He's taking off his galoshes and that functions wonderfully in both the story and the movie. But he's taking off his galoshes just coming from the snow. And he does have this brief in the story. It's quite a at least sexually charged from his end. He is quite kind of um, very, you know, briefly enamored with this young woman who's helping him. He wants to say something smart and witty and engaging. And instead, what he elicits is a response that is almost a condemnation of him, an implicit condemnation of how he's just looking to impress her because he wants to come off as a, you know, somewhat more sexually appealing person than he in fact is to her and that he's kind of an older and portly and and not not too... Um, interesting a figure to, to this young maid and that um, that sense of shame and self-consciousness comes just comes off as kind of grumpy in, in the movie without that that pause and reflection that we see in the text what i do think works really well is a scene in which he encounters a kind of young wily fervent um irish patriot on the dance floor Molly who, who calls her who calls him a west britain over and over again to imply that he's just you know part of the british empire who deigns you know ireland by traveling west a little bit to to go to some parties and i think that this movie because of the performance of molly ivers the way that she just kind of spits west britain at him with a big smile on her face yeah. i think that that um that part of the adaptation works beautifully um, in communicating everything that Gabriel lacks and doesn't understand about the kind of Irish Republican movement and that he sees them as kind of petulant and impetuous and stuff, whereas she sees him as just, you know, the an older generation that needs to get out of the way. Well, that's partly true, but also she's flirtatious. So yes. in the movie, she winks at him. That's not captured in the story in in the story, actually, that would fall flat. But what she does do in the story is she holds his hand very, very firmly. It's clearly conveyed almost that it's a kind of seduction scene. Um, and actually, it could be, in fact, the case that while she objects to his anti-republicanism, she's a little bit turned on by his intellectual firepower because she has it too. And it's something, actually, that Greta lacks, and in fact, this is one thing they do capture in the movie that a story can never capture. One thing is, did you catch the difference in the accents? His accent is less Irish, less country Irish, and hers is more so. Sure. And Angelica Houston really captures that very, very effectively, the fact that she, that the character... Greta Conroy is still a country girl to a certain to a large extent. Even um, though even though they've had they have kids. They have you know, they've been married for a while and they have kids. Um that gets to again the um the kind of ramifications of the embodiment of characters through actors, right? You have unlike with a story written on the page, you have a medium for expression through actual people trying to kind of read these lines and bring these characters to life. I'm glad that we started out kind of towards where I at least I think where both of us thought that the movie uh, failed to live up to the standards of the story in capturing that interiority. And I'd love to go to at least one, one part where I thought it was um, kind of equally effective with the story, and then I've got another bit for where I thought it exceeded the story. But that, that equal, um, that kind of perfect part of a movie adaptation of literature is the way that a filmmaker like John Huston is able to use um, close-ups 
to uh, emphasize certain kind of symbols in the context of a frame. Uh, and I'm thinking in particular of the galoshes and the, these right. galoshes, these kind of rubber boots that um, Conroy wears on the outside of his boots to keep his feet from getting too cold um, come up over and over again in the story. And Houston is able to draw our, you know, the audience's attention to the kind of symbolic significance of it without, I found, you know, hitting us over the head by offering the occasional close up of the galoshes. In, in the story, we have to rely upon Joyce's occasional description of them or someone makes a joke about wearing a galosh. Here we get to see them um, kind of o- occupying the, I mean, just kind of blown up to fill the entire frame. We see these, these silly protective, um, and again, the, something that represents Conroy's, you know, alienation from the country that he's in, his inability to make like and meaningful sexual contact. Right. With so his, we actually need to, characters. We, we actually, so one thing we need to convey to the audience is the big deal about galoshes is they're European. It's a European phenomenon wearing galoshes or overshoes for your for your feet right. and in ireland everyone still is walking around without galoshes and just getting their right. feet wet it's like putting on a glove to touch someone that you care about it's you know all the other characters laugh at him for wearing galoshes and i think that houston and he does this with the food at the dinner table as well the way that the camera is able to keep its eye trained on a certain um a certain element of the scene is something that i think joyce does masterfully in describing you know in these you know 40 50 line paragraphs about uh uh, maybe not that long, but these very long paragraphs about all of the food consumed, and you get a sense of just the like soporific decadence of, of this table. You know, they're just kind of eating themselves to sleep. Here, we get to see the tray passed along from hand to hand, and we really get to focus on on this symbol that both Houston and the and Joyce want us to pay attention it, to. It's 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 quite a festive scene. Now, one of the most interesting things that I found was a scene that I thought could have been better than the novel uh, than the story. And ended up being flubbed, ironically enough. So one of the great scenes that really, really conveys something that the story doesn't convey nearly as much, it gets almost buried, is there's a conversation that goes on about great opera singers. And one of the characters, Aunt Kate, one of the hosts for this party, basically says, you know, there was a wonderful opera singer who was local. No one will remember him. But I remember him. His name was Parkinson. And then she becomes rather teary-eyed about it. Now, what's really beautiful is Houston captures rightly the idea that Kate's reminiscence about this Parkinson is supposed to match Greta's reminiscence about a long-lost love, a young boy who loved her who had a beautiful voice, too. And who's Irish. And And, and who's Irish, right? right? Not European. Um, what doesn't work in the movie is that he does a great big close-up of Aunt Kate with tears in her eyes and just kind of hangs on it. And I remember watching saying, gosh, this could have been such a wonderful scene, but it's been over-dramatized in order to literally hit you over the head with the point. You know, I unfortunately felt that way about the stairwell scene as well, which is maybe the beginning of Conroy's epiphany, where we see him looking up at his wife as she listens to this this Irish tune, and she first remembers her relationship with this long-lost boy. Um, And... We, 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 I feel like the director is telling us this is significant without actually using the, I don't know, the tools available to him as a filmmaker to get the audience to understand it's significant. There's it, and maybe that's when, when you, um, 
when you reference maybe overacting, detracting a bit from the power of the story, I think that's a big kind of drawback and vulnerability for any adaptation in that yeah. when the actors um, stand out more than the character, uh, then it's it's a bit distracting from our kind of immersion in the story and the themes that are being explored. Well, here we have a, a kind of an acting no-no, and that acting no-no is called emoting. And that's when you... <laughs> basically express emotion, but fundamentally you're over-expressing emotion. And actually when I watched that scene, I had exactly the same response. And one of the things that goes on in one's head when you watch a movie like this, and you also know the source material pretty well, is you begin to reconceive how you would have actually staged it. So in this scene, what happens is, and actually it's not exactly accurate for what I thought was being described in the story, so in this scene, Angelica Houston turns the 180 degrees around the star stairwell and comes halfway down while facing her husband who's at the foot of the stairwell. She hears the music and looks up towards the upstairs and listens in some sort of strange rapture for a while. But what almost would have made far more sense was for her not to come halfway down the stairwell but to stop at where the stairwell was about to turn, not face her husband, look out the window, because it's a snowy day. And this is very important. There's a very good reason why she's having all these reminiscences. It's a snowy day in Ireland. They talk quite a bit about the fact that it's, it is a snowy day and how rare it is to have a, a, a good snowy Christmas in Ireland. And, and, and Joyce even emphasizes how it's snowing all over Ireland. That is also what's kind of occurring the day that she sees her long-lost love, at, who is, uh, some spoilers here, he's ill and he's actually showing up at her doorstep while he's ill in bad weather. So the snow is, is reminding her as well of this. Had she stopped at the stairwell, looked out the window, which faces away from her husband, lost in thought, but they couldn't do it because it was a stained glass window that could not be looked out of. And I, I think that, you know, the power of Joyce's <laughs> prose in that scene is that, you know, she's not quite a silhouette, but she's also not perfectly kind of recognizable and distinct to her husband. The husband doesn't even recognize her at first. I mean, she says, he says there's a woman kind of standing at the top of the stairs. It's my, it's my, it's my wife. And, and then he describes certain very like small visual elements that pop out to him, in, both in the way that he would paint her if he were to make a picture of this, right. um, but also in the way that he's perceiving her at this moment. It's not in her movie star glamour standing halfway down the stairwell, just kind of beatific, but right. it's he, he recognizes a few kind of small patches of color on her dress, kind of reflecting the color of her hair and so on and so forth. Um, I do want to say one, so if we get to uh, where I think the adaptation works beautifully and maybe even better than what a work of literature is capable of doing, um, it's going back to that final scene that we spoke about a bit critically earlier on uh, before the, the monologue kicks in when we are in the hotel room after the party and we see the Conroys in the bedroom and we know, at least from the Joyce story, this isn't communicated too well in the movie, Conroy is just kind of bursting with lust like he really right. he really wants to just hold you know his wife in his arms and kind of demonstrate this long lost passion that he feels for her but what we see in the movie that i don't think a, a writer could ever quite capture is accomplished through this this kind of depth of field where we have angelica houston as the wife 
at, in the front, um, in the kind of first, uh, at, at the front of the frame, and then we have the husband in the back looking in the Cheval mirror, and we see his face reflected as he's looking up at Angelica Houston. And they're a good seven or eight feet apart, and they seem simultaneously incredibly distant from one another and also incredibly present in one another's face. And I think the way that filmmakers are able to communicate that distance and presence through the depth of a plane of vision is is just phenomenal. And there's inevitably, when when you're reading a text, you have to read things sequentially. Even if the narrative isn't sequential, yeah. you have to, you know, read one word first and then the next. With this image, I felt like I was receiving so much emotional information about this couple and where they were at at the time through just one shot and one like caref- carefully placed set of actors. I, I thought it was beautiful. And then, you know, I, I enjoyed the montage of, you know, snow over Ireland during the month. I, I didn't find that too much, but that's that one shot of them so far and so close at the same time, I found pretty breathtaking. In any sort of movie, it's it's the old uh, picture's worth a thousand words. There is an impact factor, and there's something that text can convey better than visual arts, and there's something that visual arts can convey that words just won't do. That's just the reality of experiencing art. And that's actually one of the reasons why we want to experience art. If someone was to write a, symfo- a symphony called The Dead, it would be a very different experience. By the way, one of the interesting things about this movie is there's very little scoring. In fact, the one or two times when music actually shows up that's not played in the household is itself one of those other jarring moments, almost superfluous. That's actually one of the things I love about the movie. There's so little scoring, and I love a movie that feels bold enough to go ahead without the without scoring, because scoring also tries to uplift the emotionality of the movie, sometimes superfluously. Right. Manipulate is another way that one could describe how well, scores are often used. Right. right. It exaggerates, yeah. unless it's ironic music, right. and that's a totally different phenomenon and this altogether. Is, this is a very, it's a very musical story. I mean, music plays a very important role Huge in the right. context of the story, and I think uh, Houston made the perfect decision in being spare and how he deployed that yep. music because when it's used, we know that it functions in the context of the kind of emotional arc of the characters as opposed to something that's meant to entertain us from Absolutely. from one scene to another. Um, we are almost at the end of the show, and for podcast listeners, you will have to check out my um, conversation with Kate Russian uh, on the podcast. We won't have time to play it during our radio conversation here, but I want to make sure to ask you, Bennett, before we end our talk about any other um, movie adaptations of works of literature that you want to recommend or share here today. You sent over a few in an email yeah, before I'll, our conversation. I'll just, I'll just share Maybe one. share a few titles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One, I'll, I'll share two. But also tell me, tell me why you like it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to share two because there are two in particular that to me... So there's two that are very different, but they have a similar... Uh, they address a similar phenomenon. Um, one is the movie that solves a problem and that was in the book. Um, and the other is the movie that makes a significant alteration that really deepens the result. So let's do the, the second one first, which is deepening the result. So th- my classic example is Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory as opposed to Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. Could you get a bit closer on the mic too? So um, in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, there's one, there's innumerable changes, and you can even go to the Wikipedia article, and they actually document all the differences between the two movie versions and the book. Um, 
But the one huge change made in the in the first movie, the one with Gene Wilder, is Charlie Bucket's father is not living. And that's a huge, huge change because it changes the entire trajectory of the movie. Willy Wonka is now the substitute father. And that's why that movie has so much more emotional resonance as opposed to the remake with Johnny Depp, which there are people who love it, but they love it for its faithfulness and for its darkness. But I can't say they love it for its emotional richness. That's one example where I thought that kind of plot change was actually a real improvement. The book is flat by comparison with respect to that issue. Um, and talk it, about the perfect uh, kind of actorly representation of a character and Gene Wilder representing uh, Willy Wonka. I mean, there may no be no better pairing of literary character with, uh, with Oh, yeah. Than, Not only Gene like, Wilder, but, but even some of the child actors, especially the one who plays Charlie. Um, so um, the one that solves a problem, and I recommend this to everyone, is um, I've been a huge fan for many years of the, of the movie Enchanted April. This is based on a novel that was written in 1922 by Elizabeth von Arnhem that is called Enchanted April. And I had decided to actually read the novel many, many years later, uh, after even seeing the movie probably for the fourth or fifth time, to see how well they tracked. And what was amazing was they tracked very, very closely, which is not unusual for a movie that was actually uh, a BBC Studios movie. But it had one change, one change that solved a problem in the novel that is so heinous, it almost literally ruins the novel. And I don't even know if if we even have enough time to get into it, but in essence... It's a you, remo- you only have 15 seconds, I'm afraid. So whatever uh, you want to communicate you know about what? in 15 seconds. I recommend people should see Enchanted April, which is a wonderful, wonderful movie, and then go ahead and read the novel. It's actually quite a good novel, except for this one difference in how two characters get treated and come together at the end. The movie does it so, so much better. I'm going to very quickly throw out a few recommendations of my own before the end of the show. Uh, I wonder if if you would agree with any of these. Uh, The Great Gatsby, the 2013 adaptation by Baz Luhrmann. I find a perfect adaptation of F. Scott Fitzgerald's uh, kind of frantic, uh, ecstatic jazz age text with Leonardo DiCaprio as as Jay Gatsby in that. Um, The Trial uh, by Orson Welles, a 1952 adaptation of uh, Franz Kafka's novel. Uh, Throne of Blood. Akira Kurosawa made a number of very important and very fantastic adaptations of Shakespeare plays and this is his adaptation of Macbeth talk about completely transforming yeah. uh, the story both in terms and of setting Man, and character which is King Lear uh, that's Ron actually uh, Ron, Ron is, sorry yeah, yeah. thank you yes, yes. Um, and Long Day's Journey Tonight by Sidney Lumet uh, the adaptation of the Eugene O'Neill play starring Catherine Hepburn and the, the other great, the other, one of the other great adaptations is actually To Kill a Mockingbird ah, it's yes. a wonder I mean it's a wonderful book and it's a wonderful movie Bennett, where can people find out more about the New Haven Review or anything else you want to plug? Is there a uh, website you can NewHavenReview.com for New Haven Review, the uh, InstituteLibrary.org for the Institute Library where we host our readings. Bennett, please come back, talk more about movies with us. It's a pleasure no to problem. have you on. Thank you, Tom. It was an honor. Okay, you can find a complete archive of Deep Focus episodes at DeepFocusRadio.com, including my conversation with Kate Russian about A Quiet Passion. We will catch up with you next week. Welcome back to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On this segment of the show, we'll be talking about A Quiet Passion, Terrence Davies' new biopic about 19th century American poet Emily Dickinson that stars Cynthia Nixon, Jennifer Ayle, and Keith Carradine. 
To help me review this new movie, I'm very happy to welcome to the show Kate Russian. Kate is a teaching artist for the Connecticut Office of the Arts and a Pushcart Prize-nominated poet. She is a regular guest on the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR and a first-time guest here on Deep Focus. Kate, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure and an honor to, to have you here. Well, thank you, Tom. It's an honor to be here with you. Okay, so, like many an artist biopic, A Quiet Passion describes the decade-sweeping rise and fall of a troubled artist grappling with the unique demands of her creativity. Unlike other films in the genre, though, A Quiet Passion takes place almost entirely within the confines of a single home, and our solitary, stubborn protagonist is undone not by sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but by a preoccupation with something much more mundane and much more mysterious, her own mortality. Uh, the movie opens with a teenage Dickinson pushing back against the restrictive social mores of her 1840s New England boarding school, where stern patrician elders scowl at women expressing themselves with anything more than a curtsy. Uh, the movie then jumps to the 1860s and progresses decade by decade through Dickinson's adulthood, which is spent almost entirely at her family home in Amherst, Massachusetts. Dickinson has certain routines that structure her days, taking visitors during the afternoon, reading with family in the evening, writing poetry by candlelight late at night. But as she ages, friendships dissolve, family relationships grow tense, and her poetic obsessions with fame, truth, beauty, and death bleed seamlessly from the page into her life. So, Kate, as you watched A Quiet Passion, did you find yourself wrapped up in Davy's portrait of a stationary artist who travels great distances of intellect, morality, and physical decay? Or did you wish that you had stayed home yourself with a pocket full of Emily Dickinson poems to keep you company? Well, I'm very glad that I saw the movie. Being a poet myself, being a woman poet, I'm I'm very interested in Emily Dickinson, and she's one of the first, uh, I'd say, classic poets that I was introduced to in school as a kid. Uh, and I would say that the film... Uh, has sent me back to her work, and I'm glad about that. So that I think that's one thing that um, is maybe the the bare. Well, I don't know. I'm interested to get your take on this. Is this a, a bare minimum of artist biopics, or perhaps a failing? If it inspires the viewer to go out and and check out the the art and the artist who's kind of at the center of the story. On, on the one hand, I can see that being a a great recommendation for a movie and that it gets an audience as excited about and intrigued by the, the art on display in the movie and the themes kind of covered by that art. But also, I think maybe a, a, something dangerous about that, that response is that sometimes the movie seems a bit unnecessary. I mean, did you find this this movie to be a helpful reminder of your kind of attraction to, to and response to Dickinson's poetry? Or did you feel like it, I don't know, got at a side of Dickinson or her work that maybe you had not contemplated before? Well, you know, I think one thing that the, um, that the film does is that it reminds us that Emily Dickinson was a real live flesh and blood woman and that she was not this um, a myth that has grown up around um, the portrait of uh, of this recluse frozen in a photograph. So I think it was very good for that. But I guess I, I don't agree that it's a biography or a biopic. I, I see it more as... Um, Terrence Davies' meditation on Emily Dickinson 
and and some of the themes that she deals with um, in her poetry and some of the issues she faced in her life. So let's let's jump into to some of those themes and, and how they kind of manifest themselves in the movie itself. Because this, as I tried to get at in the intro, this is at the same time both a uh, a typical and a very atypical biopic. On the one hand, it um, you know it takes a very wide kind of lens at the life of an individual. I mean, we see three or four decades compressed into the course of two hours, and that is always challenging for for any storyteller. But um, we and we and we see her kind of evolution as an artist. Her uh, although I, I don't know if we ever see much much struggling with with creating the art itself. It, it always from the very beginning it seems to come, if not quite naturally, she seems to be quite adept at expressing herself through poetry from the very beginning of the movie. But this is an atypical protagonist, and that for the last you know couple decades of her life, and certainly last hour of the movie. She doesn't really go anywhere, right? She stays in that home in in Amherst, Massachusetts. And I think the challenge for the filmmaker is to how do you create that, or how do you really represent that intellectual ferment um, as something kind of visually appealing and exciting and understandable, while still I don't know, kind of staying put. Did you did you feel like this movie was? Um, I don't know, too too claustrophobic or maybe appropriately claustrophobic. Like, how how do you think that Davies handled the the stain in one location for for many many decades um, for Emily Emily Dickinson's life? Well, you you took the term right out of out of my brain. I I did feel that the movie was claustrophobic, but I I didn't feel that it was Emily Dickinson who was claustrophobic. I I thought that the way that Davies put the film together. Uh, was claustrophobic. Uh, for one thing, it, it was so dark. Um, as the movie progressed, it seemed like, especially the interior scenes, got darker and darker, and there were more and more close-ups. Um, and he omitted some aspects of Dickinson's life and her creative process that I think would have opened the movie up more and made it seem not so claustrophobic. You know, I, I was interested in that. You mentioned that in an email exchange we had before this conversation that you wish that her uh, relationship to nature was explored a bit more. And I think you had said her her sister-in-law, um, or I, there there was one other element you identified. But um, but I I wonder if this is uh, something. You know, it, it's I think that this is one of those movies where I, the further I get from the actual experience of watching it, and we'll talk about that in a second. I I appreciate it more, and I think that you're right. It reflects. Davy's take on this particular artist as opposed to a a straight up biography of her what he's interested in is that tension between uh her inevitable mortality her longing to be read and recognized as a great poet and her simultaneous uh kind of requirement that one cannot um be content with worldly fame even even if one could achieve worldly fame which she's pretty sure that she's not going to have um that that's a, not a proper indication of someone who's speaking kind of truly and honestly through their art um i didn't really have any trouble with him kind of picking and choosing which of those themes in her life he was most interested in but i do yeah i do appreciate that depending on the themes you pick um, you're kind of confined to one particular room um, if if you're not going to explore the the nature angle. Um, 
Did you, what did you think of the use of, of poetry itself? I mean, Dickinson's poetry is all over this movie, right? It's used as kind of this voiceover, not quite narration, but more a, a commentary on certain scenes. Sometimes we hear her reciting the poetry to different characters as a kind of interspersion with her dialogue. Um, what, what did you think of the way that Davies handled Dickinson's poetry itself? Well, I guess I have, I have to mention uh, Cynthia Nixon's performance. I, I thought she was uh, just wonderful in the way the when she entered the the screen, I just felt that she brought this this energy with her, and I thought that uh, Cynthia Nixon, as an actress, really communicated this quiet passion, and I, I thought her reading of uh, Emily Dickinson's poems in the uh, voiceover uh, was was wonderful and added another dimension uh, to the film. I did think it was a little ridiculous when she uh, read, uh, when she recited, I'm nobody, who are you, to the baby. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, you know, that's that's Daisy's choice. But uh, I, in, all in all, I thought that her recitation of the poetry was good. I guess one of my problems was is that you don't really see how you got there, how she got to the poetry. Um, you don't see her walking. You don't see her observing nature. And I think most importantly, you don't... So the viewer is not given a sense of the importance of her sister-in-law, Susan Huntington Davidson to her poetry, to her analysis, and to her creative process, because they actually had a a 36-year correspondence. Susan Huntington Dickinson, her her sister-in-law, was her primary reader, um, and they read and discussed the classics of literature together. So she was really, her sister-in-law was really uh, at the heart of her intellectual and creative life. And I felt that Davies' rendition of Dickinson's life didn't give us that sense at all. I, I think you've picked up on a, a huge problem or kind of hurdle that I encountered when watching this movie and in that often my favorite part of movies about artists and I'm thinking back to uh, the recent movie Love and Mercy about Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys and also a one called Their Finest which is out right now which is about kind of female screenwriters in the British World War II Ministry of Information but my, my favorite part of artist movies are often the scenes that describe the process of creating art uh, there's something truly magical about watching Brian Wilson in the studio working with, you know, 30 different studio session musicians to come up with the unique, like, tones and textures of pet sounds. There's something remarkable about three screenwriters kind of figuring out a structure of a story that is going to ultimately be realized with, you know, dozens of people and millions of dollars. And, and the whole, you know, the whole artistic shebang, it, it's it's wonderful watching it emerge from a person's or a group's kind of collective mind and then become something in this world that people can interact with and enjoy and contemplate. This movie, there's like, there's so few scenes of of process here. And I think that um, I'm, 
I, I think there are a few reasons why Davies may have made that decision. And we do see Dickinson writing at, by candlelight early in the morning, and that plays an important role in, in telling us that, one, her father may be a bit more tolerant than his kind of patrician neighbors and that he lets his daughter stay up late writing, whereas others may uh, require them to go to bed. Um, and we see her, her persistence and, and her determination to, to write at all costs. But I think that a movie about an artist kind of loses something when we when we miss the magic of like seeing the how the art is created itself when it kind of emerges fully formed as a kind of direct commentary upon the life that we're seeing yes we like i understand that it it seems maybe more relevant then or or maybe uh it, the connections are easier to draw between what someone is writing and what they're experiencing but but art is more than relevant, right? I feel like it's there's something truly like special about the creation of art that I don't know. I, I found kind. Of, did you did you find that lacking in this movie too, or was that something I'm I was just harping on? No, I I found it lacking as well, and I I know it's very difficult to um, to communicate visually the process of a writer. Um, you know, I think about. In contrast, I think about the um, the biography of um, some biography of Vincent Van Gogh, and of course, when you're when you're um, portraying a visual artist, you can show your their art. Uh, so, I feel that for Dickinson to really communicate what her process was. I think he needed to actually see her reading Shakespeare uh, or Browning. Or and the Brontes. Have, she talks a lot or, about or her, the her love the Yeah, or, or being uh, in conversation with her sister-in-law or actually seeing some of the letters or hearing some of the letters that she wrote her sister-in-law and others where she's discussing ideas or where she's quoting uh, certain works of literature. And then I think that that would help. And again, I go back to the fact that she had so much nature in her poetry, and she was obviously very observant, but we don't see her specifically observing nature and responding to it. You know, one one thing that I was very appreciative of this movie kind of reminding me is that Emily Dickinson's poetry is uh, is just kind of riddled with allusions to and fear of and anticipation of death. Uh, like death is is everywhere in Dickinson's poetry. And as someone who hadn't hadn't kind of flipped through her poems recently, it was quite a kind of dramatic reminder. And as I have a, a small collection with me here in the studio now and as I was flipping through before the show it's just it's it's everywhere and it's you know maybe one of the kind of more appealing things about her poetry is that she's able to uh apply this relatively um not like joyful but the the rhyming and the kind of iambic meter makes the poem certainly kind of accessible and 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 fun and a, a little bit, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're full of life. Uh, they're, they're almost like children's rhymes, but the, the level of kind of honesty and introspection elevate them well above anything that would be reserved just for children. But it's, this movie really kind of hammers home how death was an kind of all consuming preoccupation 
of Dickinson's. And I, I wonder, and the, oh, right, the reason I brought that up right now is that this movie is riddled with um, images of suffering, particularly in the latter half. And we, after a relatively kind of mundane first half, we see Dickinson kind of thrown through the ringer. And, and it is very difficult to watch. I and mean, she succumbs to some pretty brutal kind of physical decay. I, I wonder um, what you thought of those scenes of her kind of experiencing the mortality that she had spent in an entire life kind of writing about. Well, you know, as I said before, I, I, I really appreciate um, a quiet passion for reminding us that Emily Dickinson was a real person. Uh, on the other hand, um, I thought that Davies' uh, emphasis on the the brutality and loneliness of illness and death and dying um, was a bit excessive, and, and I wondered. I asked myself to what end. Um, because certainly it wasn't only Emily Dickinson who had to deal with this. And, you know, I, I, the, the film reminded me that this was a time before uh, antibiotics and dialysis and pain relief and palliative care. So certainly, you know, everyone uh, in the 19th century struggled with death and people laid out their loved ones in their families. People prepared the bodies themselves. Uh, but I did wonder about, I guess, the balance of those scenes in relation to the rest of the narrative, especially in light of the omission of other parts of El uh, Dickinson's life that I felt were very important to understand in order to understand her. You know, I, I wonder if, because the what I thought of while watching this movie and, and while reflecting on those scenes of suffering um, was the story of, uh, of Madame Bovary uh, by Flaubert and the kind of viciousness of his portrayal of um, Madame Bovary after she drinks the poison and this is not some romantic suicide that she's about to participate in, but a truly, like, graphic and unyielding and, and kind of merciless and very painful death. And I, I wonder if, not to, not to imply that this movie is a, a satire uh, by any means, but there's certainly plenty of comedy in it as well. Um, but I, I do wonder if, if this is Davies exploring what, uh, you know, what death looks like to um, the, the kind of <laughs> the, like rude shock of death for someone who has spent an entire life kind of contemplating uh, one's own mortality and, and how one should kind of live and act and write and form relationships with the understanding that one is here for only so long. Uh, I, I feel like this is a kind of a, a brutal kind of reminder for this character that death is not something to be ignored, but it's certainly there's, there's nothing pretty and there is nothing fun uh, about death. It, it can, it can be uh, quite violent and painful and, and kind of like a, it, it's it's like a rupture, right, for for Dickinson and her art. Um, it seems like more appropriate the farther I get from it, but boy, was it difficult to watch. Well, I do you think it was um, the re the viewer being reminded, or Emily Dickinson being reminded? Because certainly she dealt 
dealt with uh, the death, deaths of other people in her family, in her life, the deaths, deaths of her parents, deaths of um, of her her nephews. Uh, so I I don't know. I don't I don't think that um, I don't think that Emily Dickinson's meditation on death was um, in absence of an understanding of the harsh realities. Mm. Um, yeah, I, perhaps she she didn't did not need the reminder, but uh, that was. Some some rationale that I they came up with as as I thought about boy those those really brutal scenes uh, towards towards the end of the movie. Um, I I wanted to bef- before we end, I wanted to make sure to get your perspective as as a poet yourself watching a movie about a poet, especially one that you so admire and certainly one that is held in such high esteem in the American kind of literary canon. You've mentioned it a few times over the course of the conversation what um, you think. Uh, is you know so important to the life of a poet that may be missing in this movie that that process that uh, communing with nature, seeing what in, inspires her and the conversations and other literature that that get her going. But I I wonder from a a poet's perspective on this take, um, what what did you think of this movie as a a movie about the life of a poet? Well, again, I have to go back to uh, what I felt was an, an absence of a. Uh, representation of the process and you know as a sidebar I, I to that I have to say that of course the the filmmaker makes the filmmakers choices uh, it's about framing um, I felt the frame was too tight I felt the frame was too small and I felt that the the film that the viewer would have understood what Emily Dickinson was up against as an intellectual, as a poet, as a writer. If we knew from the film that her grandfather had founded uh, Amherst College, that her father and brother were alums and trustees, and that she could not go there because Amherst College excluded women at that time. Uh, So... I think if we knew that, we would have more of an appreciation of what she was up against uh, as a poet, as a woman, as a creative person to keep going, to not give up in the face of all the opposition uh, to her uh, uh, as a woman, uh, as an unmarried woman, and to continue to write, to create, as she sought fit in conversation with her sister-in-law. You know, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up towards the end of our conversation here uh, the focus in this movie on the, the challenges of being a, a woman at all and a female artist in particular in, in, this, uh, in this particular environment of 19th century New England. Um, you know, we, one of the more kind of poignant developments for me over the course of the film is this kind of recurring line about how you inevitably become the thing that you, you most feared. And by the end of the movie, we see her really, um, you know, rebelling against and going on kind of various tirades against her brother's infidelity. And it makes sense in a number of ways based on what we know about Dickinson, her commitment to honesty and integrity and, and truthfulness. 
Um, but I think that she also, you know, recognizes at the end that there's something, you know, she has become profoundly embittered, I think is the word that she uses. That That is the thing that she feared most that she has found herself becoming. She has become this kind of moralizing presence uh, that she so rebelled against towards the beginning of the movie and, and earlier in her life. Um, but I, as, as a, as a very, uh, last comment, do you, um, do you have any, any, any further thoughts on this movie's representation of the challenges of being a female artist in particular? Yes. You know, I, I would say again, I would go back to my main point that if we don't understand from the film, if we don't see her connection to uh, her sister-in-law, to Susan Dickerson, then we can only see her her response to her brother's infidelity as um, uh, an unmarried woman who has become bitter. Uh, but if we can see her love for her sister-in-law, her dependence on her sister-in-law, her intimacy with her sister-in-law, then we can, I think, see other dimensions to her response to her brother that might have might seem moralistic or over the top. Uh, so one of the things the film did for me was to take me to Susan Huntington Dickerson's obituary, which she wrote for Emily Dickinson, uh, and to learn that her sister-in-law prepared her burial dress and the flowers and wrote the obituary. And if I might, I would I would read uh, just the, the end. Oh, please do. From the obituary. Okay. So this is Susan Huntington Dixon writing in the obituary for her friend and sister-in-law, Emily Dickinson, the poet, who died actually 131 years ago this week. Oh, wow. On May 15th, 1886. And this uh, obituary uh, ran in the Springfield uh, Republican uh, on May 18th. And she says, one of the things she says, Susan Huntington Dickinson says is, so intimate and passionate, her love of nature, she seemed herself a part of the high March sky, the summer day, and bird call. And then she goes on at the end of the obituary to say, how better note the flight of the soul of fire in a shell of pearl than by her own breathings. And then she quotes Emily Dickinson at the end of the obituary. Morns like these we parted. Noons like these she rose. Fluttering first, then firmer to her repose. Uh, beautiful. Well, you know what? I think that is as, as good a place as any to end our conversation. Um, thank you so much for sharing that, Kate. And, and thank you for being on the show. Kate is a teaching artist for the Connecticut Office of the Arts and a Pushcart Prize-nominated poet. And we've been talking about 
the new Emily Dickinson biopic, A Quiet Passion. Um, Kate, thank you so much for, for coming on Deep Focus. All right. Thank you, Tom. And if I may, I would just leave your listeners with two publications where they can learn more about Emily Dickinson. Please. One is Open Me Carefully, Emily Dickinson's Intimate Letters to Susan Huntington Dickinson. And that's by Smith and Hart from Paris Press. And my Emily Dickinson by Susan Howell, who is a Connecticut resident. And that's her analysis of Dickinson's poetry from New Directions Press. Wonderful. We will link to both of those books on the Deep Focus website at deepfocusradio.com, where you can find a complete archive of all uh, episodes of, of Deep Focus for the past two years. Um, thank you for the recommendations, and, and we will talk to you soon, Kate. Thank you. Bye-bye.